But let's look at God's Word. If you have uh, your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. Um, I don't know about you all, but our family has been enjoying the Olympics, uh, the, the Winter Olympics at our house. It's, it's pretty fun to watch. There's some amazing athletes that, that compete in these contests. They're often so so close, and it's breathtaking to see what they're doing. Um, and the goal is always the same, isn't it? To win the gold, to be the best in the world, the best of the best, to stand on top of that podium and say, I am the best, I am the greatest loser in the world, even though 50% of the world has no idea what a luge is, <laughs> and like 0.001% of the world ever has the opportunity to sit on a luge and go down a luge track, but still, that person is the best loser in the world, <laughs> and they, they are number one. I noticed this too, I noticed that the podiums, um, they seem that there's not much of a difference, you know, that the person who's standing on the gold medal podium is not that much higher than the silver medalist or the or the bronze medalist. I told Andrew, I said, if I worked my whole life for this, I'd want the gold to be, I mean, put it up there, you know, put me above, and maybe that's the pride of my heart. I think that's in all of us. We're not Olympians, but, but we want to be the greatest at something, right? We want to, we want to consider ourselves to, to be great, um, to be um, powerful, to be influential, something like that. And so we, we find things like the luge. <laughs> we find things that, that we can exalt ourselves in. I'm the best at this. I'm the greatest in this. We compare ourselves with, with one another in our pride. We think of ways that, that we are better than other people. Ways that we can say, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest at my school. I'm the greatest at my workplace. I'm the greatest in my family. Or even, I'm the greatest in this church. It happens. We like to project our best, the best image of ourselves in the world. We like to gossip about the faults of others, and, and in that we compare ourselves with, with other people. We seek out compliments from others. We hide our failures and sins. Do you guys, is this, this isn't just me, right? I'm not just confessing my own sins here. I mean, this is who we are as, as sinful human beings, and we think sometimes that no one else dealt with that, but we all deal with this, and, and in fact, even the disciples dealt with this. Uh, the disciples dealt with this this argument. In our passage today, we find them uh, not only talking amongst themselves and saying, I'm better than you, but they also look, look outside of their own group and say, and we're better than everyone else too. And we struggle with this. We struggle with this within the church, don't we? It's sad, but we, we set up these Olympic-style competitions in our minds with our brothers and sisters in Christ and find ways that, that we can be exalted and say, we are the best well, we can stand atop the gold medal podium in our minds. We even compare our church with, with other churches. We act like those um, critical figure skating judges, and we point our fingers, ah, you know, they're a little off here. I don't know if I'd agree with the way they did this or, or that. And, and so we, we, we find a way to not only exalt ourselves above everyone in our church, but exalt our church above every other Church and, and and here in Luke nine, we're just going to look at five simple verses, verses forty six through fifty. Jesus is going to show us the way of of true humility, the way of true humility, and and it's this that in God's kingdom, it is those who are humble, who are the greatest, and give glory to God. Uh, that's that's the main idea, I think. It, in God's kingdom, it is those who are humble, who are the greatest, and give God glory. This is a word that was directed to the disciples, but it's one that every one of us needs 
Uh, I needed it this week, and so I pray to, to apply this truth to your hearts as I've been wrestling with my own pride. I want to make you wrestle with your own pride. Um, and my prayer is that, that Christ would reveal this picture of what true greatness is and that it's found in, in humility. So let's just read these five verses in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46. It says, An argument arose among them, them being the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. It's an interesting passage, and it's in the midst of this this section where we seem to see the disciples falling flat on their face over and over again. And here are two more examples of that. And right at the beginning here in verses 46 through 48, what's going on is that the disciples are saying, we're better than each other. They're fighting amongst each other about, about who is the greatest. You see that in verse 46? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I always find that amusing. I wonder what that conversation was like. Who's the most important? Who's, who's exalted above everyone else? Who, who knows how this discussion arose? I think maybe it was Peter, James, and John. Remember they'd been on the mountain with Jesus and they came down. Maybe, you know, maybe they stirred this up a little bit in their pride. Or, or maybe Jesus, is, remember, he's talking about, he's introducing this concept of his death and how the, the kingdom is going to come through his death and resurrection. And maybe they, they're just not grasping that, so they think, well, why don't we just set up the kingdom ourselves? Let's decide who's going to rank where. But however it happened, they start to pridefully exalt themselves above each other. Now, we don't necessarily have conversations like this. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a conversation like this where you say, I'm the greatest. But, but we do have it to a, a certain extent. We compare ourselves with each other. We have conversations with one another. and we, we judge other people. We find ways to say we're better than others. We do this even, even as a church. This is, this is what our prideful, sinful hearts do. And, and what we find here is that Jesus knows. <laughs> Jesus knows it, verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus knew what this conversation was about. And he knows our hearts. He knows the pride that's in our heart. He knows that, that sometimes we walk away from church thinking about how great we are. Sometimes we walk away from work or from our family thinking, oh, I, I've exalted myself above everyone else. He knows our pride and our self-exaltation. He teaches us here. I think this is what he teaches us in this first section about humility. And it's this, that humble hearts welcome everyone. Humble hearts welcome everyone. Because in response to the discussion, what does he do? Jesus calls it a child. Brings a child up to his side and has this child stand next to him. Now, in our culture... Um, Children are very often actually the center of attention. Um, they can be exalted. They can be lifted up even above. Uh, you know, they kind of rule the home at, at times. Um, but in their day, the children in, the, in the, this, this time period, children were were to be seen and not heard. Uh, they were 
they were not as high up on the ladder as they might be in our culture. Um, they were seen maybe sometimes as, as a nuisance, and that happens even in our culture as well. There's got to be some balance, I think, in understanding the role of children within our society. But that's a different discussion from a different time. Uh, but the point here is that Jesus says that, that receiving this child, if, if you will receive this child, it's the same what? As receiving me. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So if we receive a child in Jesus' name, then it's as if we are receiving him. And in receiving him, it's as if we are receiving the Father who had sent Jesus. And then he says at the end, the conclusion, verse 48, and he said to them, uh, and at the end of verse 48, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Is great. Now, so the point, in fact, is not necessarily about just receiving children. What's the point? The, what does the child represent? The child represents the least. So there could be a substitute there. Who are the least so often in Scripture? The least are maybe the, the poor. So he could have brought a poor person up and said, whoever receives this poor man in my name receives me and receives the Father. It could have been, uh, you know, so often we see widows and orphans are the ones that are brought forward in God's society and are honored. They're considered the least of these. And so I don't think it's something special necessarily about a child, but the child is to represent the least, the ones that are rejected by society. And Jesus uses this child to, to transform our understanding of what true greatness is and of what real true humility is. We often reject people, and by rejecting people, we exalt ourselves. And we do this, I think, based on a couple different things. This is what I think is going on here. We do it based on their, that person's inherent worth or their, their practical usefulness. So we reject people based on either what we perceive to be their worth or their usefulness. So let's think, let's think about this inherent worth. If you look at this child, and, and some people look at the child and they say this child has, has no inherent worth. We're not thinking about what they're able to contribute to society, but they just, they don't have worth in and of themselves. This is where ugly sins like, like racism and classism and, and discrimination and sexism, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. What Jesus, I think, is butting up against. We, we human beings, we've got a pretty bad tracker record of this, don't we? I mean, we can look back and we think about uh, the Jews in Germany. We can think about African Americans in the pre-Civil War South. We can think, and, and not to mention more recent racism. We can think about even in our modern culture, um, immigrants that come in. There's some classes that are discriminated against. Some of you have probably felt the sting of racism or classism, discrimination, being seen as less valuable as a person because of the color of your skin because of the accent you have, because of the country that you were born in. People don't see you as as valuable. We could talk about gender discrimination. Men see women as less valuable and vice versa. And we all fall into this ugly trap. We, we look at outward appearances, at the characteristics of a person, and we, and we exalt ourselves above them. Well, I'm better because of who I am in and of myself. Uh, maybe it's not those. Maybe it's um, a person's income. And you know, we start to discriminate based on, on how much money we have. We think we're greater because we have a greater amount of money than another person. James saw this in the church. And in the book of James, he writes, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man 
in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is happening in the church. That's why James is addressing it. And it happens in, in the church. It happens in our minds. It happens in our hearts. We're so foolish and sinful in this way. Uh, we find that, that the worth of a person based on their outward characteristics. The worth of a person at the very least is found in the fact that they're created in the image of God, isn't it? So there's a sense in which every human being created in the image of God is, is valuable. So whatever the color of a person's skin, they are great in the eyes of God. Whatever the size of their paycheck, they are valued by God. All people are created in the image of God and are therefore valuable. So, But maybe we don't deal with that. Maybe we don't exalt ourselves based on, on someone's worth that we see in them. Because we, we see that they're created in the image of God and so therefore they're, they're worth something. But maybe we look at something like the least of these, this child, as someone that has no practical usefulness, does not contribute anything positive necessarily to society. We see people as, um, we see ourselves as people that, that contribute something. We're, we're doing good and other people are just causing problems in society and so we discriminate against them. We, have, we, we, we exalt ourselves over them. But the irony is that Jesus loves the least of these. Jesus has this, this special heart for people that, that are actually the ones that we so often reject. In the Old Testament, when God chooses Israel, He chooses them, and it says, and let me read this to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Why did God choose Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you, and in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. So why did God choose Israel? Because they were little. <laughs> because they were the least. So that he would receive the glory. So that if they become a great nation, who looks good? Israel? No, because they're the least of these. God looks great. It continues in the New Testament. In, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians to kind of, he says more or less, why don't you guys look around? Let's think about who's here, who's part of your, your fellowship, because they started swelling up with a little bit of pride. And so Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says, you guys really aren't that much very special in the eyes of the world. There's not a whole lot of celebrities in the church. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God love the least of these? Because when he saves them, he gets the glory. Nobody looks at the least of these and says, oh wow, I can see why God chose them. No, he says, God must love them. God, God gets all the glory in that. Even in this passage that we read in James, after James confronts that discrimination in the church, what he, what he then instructs them about is he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. It's interesting. God chooses the least of these so that he can exalt himself, so that he can be seen as great. And yet so often, based on what we perceive as the value of a human being or or what we consider to be their practical usefulness, we exalt ourselves above them. But God says, no, these are the ones that I love. But remember, too, that what's going on with it, this is, this is a discussion amongst who? It's amongst the disciples. And the disciples are saying, we're better than each other. So the twelve are looking around the group and saying, well, I'm, you know, Peter says, I'm a little bit better than you, John. Or, you know, uh, the, can you imagine this, this conversation going on? And I think about that within the church, because in the church there's even less reason for us to exalt ourselves above each other. Because not only, let's think about inherent worth, right? Everyone's created in the image of God, baseline. But if someone is a follower of Jesus, then, then what else are they? Well, they're a child of God. They're my brother and sister in Christ. That, they, that Jesus has shed his blood to purchase them as a child. And Paul says, therefore, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's no male or female, all are one in Christ. And so if we exalt ourselves above each other in the church, we're saying, I'm better than someone that Jesus died for. I'm better than my brother or sister in Christ. And you think about practical usefulness, every Christian is said to be a member of what? Of the body of Christ. And every part of the body is necessary. Every part of the body is useful. It's such a great illustration, isn't it? Because you know what it's like when a little part of your body doesn't work. Everyone in the body is is necessary. I, I've got a strange illustration for you. People often talk about, you know, the toe is necessary, and if you stub your toe, it really hurts. I'll go even smaller than that. I've got a taste bud that for some reason has enlarged itself in my mouth, and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> and so even the, the smallest member of your body, when it goes out of whack, it throws everything off. And in the church, everyone is useful. Even the taste buds. (laughs) Have you ever thought about yourself as that in the body of Christ, that you are one of the taste buds? Probably not. But we are all useful. And a humble heart sees all of this, and it welcomes all. Because all people are created in in the image of God. And believers, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are all necessary as a part of the church. Do you get to see Jesus' point here, why he brings up this this child? It's so that we would, we would not pridefully compare ourselves with one another and exalt ourselves above one another, especially within the church. But I want to go, I, I think Jesus would go a step further. It's not simply that we, that we tolerate the least of those among us, that we tolerate them. That we, but rather that we see ourselves as a part of them, that in fact there is no them. There's just one big us. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you ever heard that saying? I think that's so true. Everyone comes to Jesus in the same way. We all have to come in repentance and faith. The cross is the great equalizer. It's like the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Everyone's got to go. Everyone has to go and take the number, and you've got to stand in line. It doesn't matter who you are. You stand there, and you wait behind everyone else. The DMV is a wonderful cross-section of society if you ever walk in there. Everyone's there. And, and the cross is, is that in some sense, that, that everyone has to come to Jesus in the same way. Nobody cuts the line 
to come to Christ. No one comes in because of their inherent worth or because of their practical usefulness to the kingdom. Jesus doesn't accept us based on who we are or, or what we can do. I was struck as we were reading, um, in, as Mark was reading in Deuteronomy 8, uh, when Jesus is, or when, when God is giving a warning to the Israelites, one of the things that he says is he says, um, you shall remember, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Beware in your heart if you come to Jesus and you say, who I am, my internal worth, or my usefulness in the kingdom of God, that's what got me here. And so often when we exalt ourselves above others, that's what we're saying. We're saying that for some reason I am better, and Jesus is so glad that he chose me to be a part of his kingdom. But no one gets to heaven and says, I'm here because of what I did. Everyone who gets to heaven is there because of what Jesus has done. If we're there, it's because we have come and we have actually repented. We've said, I have no internal worth in and of myself. I am a sinner. I was born a sinner and I act out in sin. And I have sinned and rebelled against God. And and it's not based on my usefulness. It's not based on the work of my hands that I'm able to come to God and say, look at all the things that I've done, God, but rather it's based on what Jesus has done. Religion so often wants to compare ourselves with others and decide, well, I'm better because of this. But, But when it comes to a relationship with Christ, it's about what Jesus has done, that Jesus has done everything that's necessary for salvation. And we do nothing. We can't do anything. So a humble heart sees that. It sees that everyone comes to Jesus in the same way, and therefore the humble heart welcomes everyone in the same way that Jesus does. And in welcoming welcoming all people, it gives glory to God alone rather than exalting ourselves. That's the thing. When we exalt ourselves in pride, what we are doing is not exalting God. But when we would humble ourselves and we would welcome all people, then God is the one who is glorified. And the beauty is that Jesus says here, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now that could be something totally twisted then. So then all the disciples say, well, I want to be the least so that I can be the greatest, you know, because we all want to be the greatest. But the reality is that if we're in the kingdom of God, do you know what we all are? We're all the least. We're all the least. It's all level. And so then we're all great in the kingdom of God. But we're all there together. There's no tiers. There's no podiums. There's no gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. But there's just one level podium. And we're all there together. Because it's not based on who we are. It's based on Jesus alone. And he is the one then that receives the glory. So let me just practically say this. So if if you've come today and you're burdened under some kind of weight of trying to please God by who you are or what you have done, then recognize that's not where it's at. Jesus accepts the least of these. That That's how you become great in the kingdom of God, is by actually saying, I've sinned. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I have nothing to offer you, God. I can't bring anything in my hands to, to earn my salvation. But I, I come to Jesus because he has lived the life I could not, and he never did fail. And then he died and took my sin upon himself. And if we would turn in repentance and faith, then we know salvation. So if you've come burdened with that weight of trying to please God, I pray that you would cast yourself on Jesus because he has borne that burden for you. And if you've come today puffed up (laughs) with who you think you are in the kingdom of God, recognize the same thing, the exact same thing, that it's not who you are. It's what Jesus has done that makes us great in the kingdom of God. 
and in fact, not greater, but great. We are all great in the kingdom of God because we are all the least. We all come in the same way. So I encourage you, very practically, at potluck tonight, as you're sitting and talking with someone, maybe try to sit with someone who, who's not like you. Maybe sit with someone that, that you wouldn't normally sit with. Now, at potluck, it's going to be awkward because everyone's going to be like, why is this person sitting with me? Maybe they don't like me. Um, we're not saying that, okay? Or, or maybe next Sunday afternoon, invite someone to have lunch with you, to hang, hang out with someone who's, who's not like you. Or, or even here, have a child. Come and sit with you at potluck tonight and realize that, that, that God loves the least of these. God loves the ones that, that society rejects. And, and as we do that, we would ask God, ask God to show you how this person is like you. How they are, in some ways, probably they, they compliment you. They are better than you. Not, not greater than you, but, but they're just, there's a balance here in the kingdom of God. Ask God that he would humble you based on who he has brought to be a part of his family. What's funny, though, is the disciples didn't just struggle with saying they're better than each other, but they thought they were better than everyone else, too. So Jesus says, no, you guys are all the same. They say, well, then, as a collective group, Jesus, aren't we better than everyone else? (coughs) Notice what happens here in verse 49. John says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. So now they're saying we're better than everyone else. And the disciples are just striking out over and over again. Uh, And John seems like he wants to salvage something here, you know. Uh, Jesus, we may have been saying and doing a a lot of things that are wrong, but look at this. Here's what we did, Jesus. There was this guy casting out demons in your name. Now, who was this guy and what was going on? It it seems that he's put in a positive light, actually. We see later in Acts that some people tried to cast out demons by the name of Jesus. Do you remember this? And and the demons actually came out and drove them out, and um, they were seen to be foolish. But, But this guy seems to actually be doing the work of Jesus in some unique way. But he's not part of the disciples. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? What did we just see in the previous passage? Remember the father brought the boy with, that was possessed with the demon, and what happens? The disciples can't cast out the demon. But this guy, who's not a part of the disciples, can. So maybe rather than stopping him, they should have said, hey, can we get some, can you tell us what you're doing exactly? Because we just tried to do that, and it didn't work at all. Um, can we talk to you? So it's kind of ironic in their pride that, that they don't want to learn from this guy. They just want to exclude him. They just, they just want to exalt themselves above him. Again, though, the disciples aren't thinking rightly. And so if a humble heart welcomes all, then we could say on this side, a humble, heart's, a humble heart hinders no one. It welcomes all and it hinders no one. You know the old joke about the guy arriving in heaven and he gets the tour from St. Peter. I'm not saying this is biblical or, or right theology. This is a joke. Um, and he gets the tour and he's seeing the different parts of heaven and then... Um, Peter opens a door and there's a group of people in there and, and he says, shh, this is the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> I think sometimes we do that, not just in heaven, but here. We think, well, we're the only ones that have it figured out. We're the only ones that are doing the work of God in our city or in our neighborhood or, or in our world. What's interesting here is Jesus isn't necessarily speaking about cooperation. He doesn't say, invite that guy to join us. Let's have a 13th disciple. He's doing some good work. Let's make him a part of us. I think that there are necessary distinctions between followers of Jesus. There are 
um, ways that, that we should partner with others in the name of Jesus. And I think there are other churches and people that we probably we can agree with them, but we shouldn't necessarily partner with them. And so I'm not saying that we just include everyone. But what Jesus is saying here is, is not that we should partner with that work, but actually we should not hinder it. Isn't that what he says? Jesus hears about this and he says, don't stop him. What's the reasoning then? For the one who is not against you is for you. Here's something to contemplate that I'm not going to address right now, so I'm going to bring up a question for you to think about later. So Jesus says here, the one who is not against you is for you. And he also says earlier, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. How do those two statements jive? I'm not going to answer that. Maybe we'll talk about it at our small group this week. But just you can think about that for later. Meditation for you. Um, sorry to do that to you. But so here, here's what he says. He says, don't stop him. The one who is not against you is for you. So if someone's not working against you, it's not even that they're neutral. They're actually helping you if they're not working against you. I think that part of what Jesus is getting at here, here's, here's kind of some practical things I think he's trying to say to the disciples and to us, is don't, don't pridefully spend your time worrying about what everyone else is doing. <laughs> we can get into this, this, this trap of thinking. We can, we can find people on all sides of us. We can find people that are more conservative than us. We can find people that are more liberal than us. We can find people that are, that are just different than us in all sorts of different ways, and we can just worry about that. We can write blog posts about it, and we can talk to our friends about it, and we can write books about how everyone is is doing things differently than the way that we do it. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. If they're doing it in my name, then then don't don't worry about it. I think rather than than worrying about it, we should be a people that that prays for it. This is, hey, people are trying to do things in the name of Jesus. Let's, let's pray that that, that that goes well. So don't pridefully spend your time worrying about what everyone else is doing. And don't pridefully think that you're the only one that's doing anything for Jesus that has value. I think we can fall into that trap too. We get, we get more worried about stopping others than we do about the work that, that we are doing. Now the reality in the city of Louisville is there are a lot of people doing a lot of really good work for the Lord. A lot of churches that, that, that are faithful to the gospel, that are seeking to, to make disciples. And so we would be totally foolish to think that we are the ones that have it all figured out, that we are the best, and to, to find all the nuances of for why people are, are doing things wrong. Rather, I think we should do what the disciples did, and we should learn from other people. Why did they just say, stop doing that? Why didn't they say, this guy's doing something good, maybe we should, we should learn? Maybe we should try to see what they're doing that, that might be helpful for our ministry. These are just some random thoughts I know, so let me try to bring it together. I, the, the thing that links these two is the, the phrase, in my name. Do you see that? So it's in verse 48. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And then in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. What do we mean by this phrase, in my name, in, in, in the name of Jesus? What, what's the point? I think baseline, what that means is it's, it's for the glory of Jesus. It's, it's glorifying 
Jesus. So we receive a child in my name for, for the glory of Jesus. And this man is, is casting out demons in my name. Jesus is the one that's receiving glory for this demon being cast out, right? So if the demon is cast out in the name of Jesus, Jesus is seen as the power that casts the demon out. So therefore, Jesus is the one that's glorified. So again, we're getting at this idea that when we humble ourselves, we take ourselves out of this realm of glory and we allow Jesus to be glorified. It, we might say, so we said, humble hearts welcome all, uh, humble hearts hinder no one, and, and humble hearts glorify Jesus. Humble hearts glorify Jesus. I think that's the test when we think about this idea of not stopping anyone. Because this is, this is a little iffy, isn't it? People doing something in Jesus' name. There's people that can do some pretty crazy things in the name of Jesus. So what's, what's this mean? I, I think the question that we ask is, is Jesus being glorified? Is, is Jesus being lifted up by this person that's doing this work? So you might think about a, a cult that maybe is doing things in Jesus' name, but they, they deny the deity of Jesus. They deny what Jesus has accomplished. They're, they're not glorifying Jesus. I, I want to be careful when I say this, but I think we can think about something like the prosperity gospel. Is Jesus glorified when we just go to him for money and possessions. No, money and possessions are glorified. That's what's made to look great, not Jesus. I think churches can often exalt, we can exalt our, our building, we can exalt our, our program, we can exalt our method of discipleship above Jesus, and therefore the, the church starts to look really good, but is Jesus being glorified? That's the ultimate question I think we need to ask him that Jesus is getting at. He's saying, this man is casting out demons in my name. Don't, don't stop him. He's giving glory to me. Don't stop him from doing that. And so as we look around and we think about what's going on outside of us, we need to be careful. And yet we also, if someone's lifting up the name of Jesus, then it's not our job to, to pick apart everything that they're doing. It's not our job to necessarily invite them to join with us or to go join with them but rather that we say, you know what, they're seeking to glorify Jesus. And so we, we don't want to stop them, because if they're not against us, then they are for us. I encourage you to meditate on that phrase. I think it's one that we need to think about. It's, it's shaping the way I th- try to think about interacting with others outside of the church. You know, not everyone does things the exact way that I want them to do things. Not every church does it the way that I think it should be done. And that's good. <laughs> And so we need to be careful of this in our pride that we don't exalt ourselves above others. So what is true humility? A heart that is, that is humbled by the gospel welcomes everyone. If, if we have received the gospel by grace through faith, then we realize that it's, it's not what we've done, it's what God has done. And, and so we welcome all. And we've got to fight against this in our hearts because we do, we want to exalt ourselves above others. But when we think about who people are, that, that they have been purchased by Christ, that they are children of God, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and, so, and, and, and they've come in the same way that we have, then we realize that it's not that there's tears within Christianity, but there's actually just one level plane. There is no them, there's just one big us. And everyone is great in the kingdom of God because everyone is the least. And if we're all the least, then we're all the greatest. It's a wonderful irony of the kingdom. And also a heart that's humbled by the gospel hinders no one. We look at other people that are doing the work of God, and maybe they're not a part of us. Maybe they're not a part of our denomination or a part of our church. They don't do things exactly the way that we do. 
But if Jesus is glorified, we don't have to necessarily invite them to join with us, but we don't want to stop what they're doing. We want to learn from them. We want to grow with them. We want to have a voice in their life to help them. Maybe maybe we can learn together. Maybe we're off a little bit because they're looking at us thinking, wow, they're doing things goofy too. But, but we're seeking to glorify Jesus. And this humility comes together and we say, how can we do this best? How can Jesus get the most glory? Because it's not about my church. It's not about Grace Fellowship Church. It's not about any other church. It's about the glory of God. That's why we, we pray together for other churches in this area. Let's have humble hearts that pray for other churches. And not just even Baptist churches, but churches that are lifting up the name of Jesus. So a heart humbled by the gospel welcomes all. A heart humbled by the gospel hinders no one. And a heart humbled by the gospel glorifies Jesus. That is the ultimate goal. Because in our pride, if we place ourselves on the pedestal, if we put ourselves on the gold medal podium and say, we are the best, you know who we've taken off? Jesus. And everyone's supposed to look at us and think about how great we are. And we start looking at us. And we start thinking about how great we are. And suddenly Jesus isn't there anymore. And Jesus isn't receiving the glory that he deserves. But when we recognize that he welcomed all, and that he hindered no one, that he welcomed us. He didn't hinder us. But he welcomed us as the least. And therefore he's made us the greatest. Then we'll take ourselves off that podium and say, you know what, Jesus? You're the only one that deserves to be there. You are the greatest. Let's let, let God receive the glory that he deserves.